0: Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, EugenioDuartePhD.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is Eugenio Duarte in New York, your host for New Books in Psychology. Today, we'll be talking about character and whether we are mistaken to think of ourselves as good people with our author, Christian B. Miller, author of the book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, published in 2017 by Oxford University Press. Christian B. Miller is A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University and Director of The Character Project, funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Templeton World Charity Foundation. He is the author of over 75 papers and two prior books, entitled Moral Character, an Empirical Theory, published by OUP in 2013, and Character and Moral Psychology, also published by OUP in 2014. And he's also the author and editor, or co-editor, of several other volumes. Christian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, it's really an honor.
0: Well, we're glad to have you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Let's let's start with, first of all, how you got interested in the topic of character.
1: Well, I would say I've been interested in it for decades now. Just growing up, I was uh, drawn towards philosophy, and one of the main topics in philosophy uh, that I really appealed to me is the topic of ethics. What kind of person should we become? What's right? What's wrong? Where does morality come from? What's the foundation or source of morality? Then I went to graduate school at Notre Dame, and I learned about a debate that I had never heard of before. It's a debate that arises in psychology about whether character even exists in the first place. Character traits like honesty, compassion, courage, we normally think that they are real, that they exist, that some people have them, that they're important, so they make a difference. But I learned that there was actually some controversy about this, whether According to certain findings in psychology, perhaps these things are illusions, that they don't, in fact, exist. So I I started reading about this in graduate school and just became intrigued by the topic. Read more and more as I became a, a faculty member to the point where I thought, we need to think from an interdisciplinary perspective, from the perspectives of philosophy, psychology, and others as well about such topics as is character even real to begin with? If it is real, what does it look like? How good are people? How bad are people? What does their character consist of? And then this led me to other uh, issues which I'm sure we'll get into about, uh, for example, how do you even define character in the first place? And how can you improve character? Are there strategies for becoming becoming a better person? But that one signature issue is what drew me in this debate about whether character is even real in the first place.
0: What does it mean for character to not be real?
1: Yes. Uh, that's a great question. So I think we would make maybe a, an analogy to other things, uh, which we maybe talked about in the past thought of were real and then came to discover we're not real. So maybe some people in the past believe that ghosts were real or that witches were real. Um, or that, that certain uh, uh, features of science uh, uh, were real. And then it turned out, upon further discovery, no, they're not. They're illusions. So let's explore that a little bit more in the case of character, with a, maybe make it a little bit more concrete. We think of something like compassion, that certain people are compassionate people. What does that mean? Well, that but to my mind, that means that I would expect those people to help in a variety of situations where they have an opportunity to help and to do so for good reasons, because they care about the people who are in need and not because they want to benefit themselves or to make themselves look better or things like that. Well, if that's what some of what compassion involves, let's go out and see, does that actually exist? are there any people who are like that? And some of the controversy that arose was, well, when we do studies of people's behavior, we may not see the patterns of behavior that you would expect if there really was compassion. Maybe it's something we've um, learned about and been told about, and maybe it's something we've inherited over the years from religious or other traditions. But when you do more careful psychological studies of people's behavior— it may not show up. <clears throat> that's what uh, that drew me in. Now I'm. That's the issue. I'm not sure uh, yet what I conclusively think about this, but I'm not so skeptical as some people are right now. My current view is that I'm not as skeptical about character being an illusion as some people.
0: Right, because if we were not, if we didn't have characters, would the would we simply be a uh amalgamation of, of different behavioral tendencies. Is that, is that what the alternative
1: theory is? Good, good. So there are a couple of different alternatives that we can talk about. One is a very radical alternative, which is we're just kind of pushed and pulled by different situations we're in. So the pressures of being in this situation where authority figures are telling us what to do, those pressures push us to obey those authority figures In other situations, perhaps it's the smell or the noise or uh, factors we might not even be paying attention to, which push us to behave in certain ways. There are studies showing us the powerful impacts of situational variables. But that's that's one, I think, very radical position, to say that there's no such thing as character at all. It's just a matter of being determined by our situations. You don't have to go that far. If you think character is an illusion, you could say, "Look, what's an illusion is traditional character traits like honesty, compassion, and courage." Perhaps we need a more subtle notion of character, a more nuanced notion. For example, we could say that maybe people don't have character. I mean, so don't have um, compassion in all situations. Maybe they just have compassion in the situation of being at the office, but they don't have compassion in the situation of being at the bar. But they have compassion at being at home, but they don't have compassion being uh, at the playground. So you can make character more situation specific like that as well. That's another strategy to go. So it's not an illusion. It's just more tied to different situations you happen to be
0: in. So you sound like for the most part, after, after studying this for a while, that you're a believer in character again, for, for the most part, it sounds like. So assuming there is character, what, what is it? What, what are we talking about when we refer to quote unquote character?
1: I approach it as a philosopher. I'm that's my training. So I always like to begin a discussion by trying to define my terms and be clear about what we're speaking of. And with respect to character, I'm really interested in moral character, especially. I think of moral character as kind of our moral fiber, Um, how we are disposed to think, feel, and act in a variety of morally relevant situations. So how am I disposed to think, feel, and act when I see someone who's um, dropped some papers? Or how am I disposed to think, feel, and act when I see someone who's uh, fallen off a ladder? These are morally relevant situations, and they can trigger in me, or um, activate in me, or um, lead my character to influence how I behave. So that's pretty abstract. Let me make it a little bit more concrete. I, I, I break up character, moral character specifically, into two main categories. We have the moral virtues, things like compassion and courage, and we have the moral vices, things like cowardice, cruelty, and, dishonest, and dishonesty. So someone who is dishonest has a character, that's part of their character. It's a character trait of theirs, which leads them to think perhaps about cheating, that it's okay to cheat, or it's okay to lie, it's okay to steal, and also want to do those things when they think that they can get away with it, when they won't get caught, when they think the rewards, the payoff for them outweighs the potential risks. So those kind of thoughts and feelings, which are part of their character, can subsequently lead them to behave in dishonest ways. For example, by cheating on a test if they think that the teacher won't catch them, or by stealing a candy bar from the store if they think that no one's looking. So the character, to sum up, uh, is a collection of your traits or your dispositions or you, how you're um, disposed to think, feel, and act in morally relevant situations.
0: But because it includes those, the character by that definition includes those three components, I'm wondering if folks who study character ever find that those three things don't always, the people don't, those three Traits or those three facets of character don't always correlate. For instance, I think you open your book with an example of a of an old older gentleman who got ill and and passed out at a Target store, and or, or a Walmart store. I can't remember, and that several people sort of passed over him without doing anything before someone did finally notice that he needed some help and tried to help him. And unfortunately, he passed away. And so, in a situation like that, I wonder: is it possible that people might think and feel one thing. And yet, despite that act in another way, like that they might think, oh my gosh, this man needs help and feel, oh, I feel bad for him. Feel like this is an emergency. Someone should help him. I should, I should help him and yet not help him.
1: That, that's right. Um, I think that happens a fair amount. So this is, a, this is referring to the idea of, kind of psychological conflict that we have when it comes to morality. On the one hand, we might have some admirable feelings and thoughts, but they can get outweighed by other feelings and thoughts we're having. So in the example, uh, perhaps we don't know for sure that, you know, we, we never tested the people in this Target store. This was on Black Friday, not this recent Black Friday, but several years ago. But why were these shoppers seeing this man in pain on the, on the floor from a heart attack, and not doing anything. But one reasonable explanation is that they were psychologically conflicted. On the one hand, as you said, they might have had some admirable thoughts. He's in need. He needs help. And some admirable feelings. I, you know, I want to help him. I should do something. But on the other hand, they might have had some conflicting feelings. For example, why isn't anyone doing anything? Perhaps other people know something that I don't. I don't want to embarrass myself by going over and helping this person only to find out that it's actually a stunt or an act or he doesn't really need help. Or, well worse, perhaps, explanation is, I just don't want to get involved. It's not my business. I don't want to get my hands dirty. So this is a case of what philosophers would call weakness of will. The people might have judged the right thing. I should help. But they had conflicting, opposing motivation that led them astray, led them to keep shopping and ignore the suffering of the person in need.
0: Is that kind of weakness of will an indication of poor character?
1: I, I think it is. Now, poor character can come in different forms. So Aristotle had, uh, just to go back to the beginning of the discussions of character and. Western philosophy, he had the category of weakness of will, but he also had a category of vice, and he thought that they were different, and that vice was actually a worse form of character. So let me uh, expand on that a little bit. So in the case of weakness of will, at least there's something positive here. At least the person is judging appropriately. Now, I should help. That's the right thing to do. It's just that their will, their motivation isn't in line with their judgment. They know the right thing to do, but they don't do it. The vicious person, Aristotle thought, I think many follow him in thinking, is worse because the vicious person doesn't even have the right judgment. The vicious person doesn't care or cares about other things, but not about the suffering of the person in our example. He doesn't even judge that he should do something to help this person who's collapsed is you know the vicious person's focus is elsewhere usually on himself yeah and it makes it makes you wonder which is worse sorry yeah so in my mind I think that's that's much worse uh, I mean at least in the case of someone who has weakness of will they can feel that conflict they might afterwards feel guilt about not following through with their their judgment that guilt might inspire in them some thoughts about trying to change who they are and so that the next time, when this happens, they're, they're, their motivation will be more in line with their judgment. So it could, not necessarily, but it could lead towards a path of neither weakness of will nor vice, but more a path towards virtue. Whereas the vicious person, there's just not much to work with. It's going to take a lot more radical change, I think, or uh, you know, a shift in that person's heart to get that person moving towards virtue.
0: So the name of your book is The Character Gap. And the book is about how we may not be the best at judging our own characters, judging the characters of others, because maybe we're, it it seems like the thesis of your book is we're not as good as we think we are. So tell us about what is the character gap exactly.
1: So I think of the character gap as the gap between how most people, myself included, actually are and how we should be. So we should be, I think, virtuous people, people who are very honest, compassionate, courageous, and so forth for all the different virtues. That's what we should aim for, and I think is a, is a very worthy ethical goal. However, we fall short. Now that's maybe no surprise um, that we fall short of uh, being uh, perfectly virtuous, even uh, deeply virtuous individuals. But... The gap, I think, is maybe larger than we might have thought originally. And it's subtler, more nuanced than we might have thought as well. There are reasons why we fall short of the people we should become, which we may not have appreciated about ourselves. So unconscious forces, for example, unconscious biases, motivations, and the like, which are not in line what a virtuous person uh, would be like. I'd be happy to give you an example, maybe to make that a little bit more concrete. So so um, people in a shopping mall, this is a study done by Robert Barron in the 1990s. People were in a shopping mall. They didn't know they were part of a study. There was one group that Barron and his colleagues were observing. It's one group of shoppers. These were shoppers who were just passing by uh, clothing stores, kind of neutral stores. And a shopper would go by the clothing store and then afterwards would be approached by an actor and asked to help, a very simple helping task. And so Baron wanted to see, would you help or not? And about 15, I don't remember the exact number, but somebody 10 or 15% of shoppers helped perform the task. Another group of shoppers was examined these were just people who had walked by Mrs. Fields Cookies or Cinnabons. So these are places, if you're not familiar with those, I'm sure most people are, um, where, the, where the, the smell will probably uh, waft over you. The smell of the cookies or the Cinnabons um, will hit you in the face. And that's the only difference. Same mall, same time of the year, etc. Just different shoppers who had walked by these particular stores. Then they were approached to perform the same helping task. Lo and behold, helping goes way up. Something like, again, I don't have the exact numbers, but like 60 to 65% of shoppers helped in this scenario.
0: Do we know what the helping task was?
1: I was making change.
0: Oh, so the, so the actor was asking, uh, saying, oh, can you break this for me? Right. You have change. Yes.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's the exact same task, so that, you know, factors out some differences about whether people had change or not. Um, and so, look, only relevant difference seems like the smell. Okay, well, why is this relevant? Where am I going with this? Well, let's, let, let's dig deeper. What's the explanation for why the smell has such an impact? Well, we don't know for sure, but one reasonable psychological explanation is that the smell put the shoppers in a good mood. Made didn't feel good. Okay, well what's that have to do with with character? Well, more to the story, why would being in a good mood increase helping? The dominant explanation is because people want to maintain their good mood. And What's one way to maintain a good mood? Help someone else. So the smell put these shoppers in a good mood. They also wanted to maintain their good mood Here's an opportunity to maintain a good mood that comes along, help someone else, so they're more inclined to help someone else. Now, I suppose that's right, and that's, you know, you have to accept some, at this point, unproven, but um, solid explanations there and assumptions. That's not the best form of character in my mind. Um, That's, I would want people to help for selfless reasons. That's what I would expect of a compassionate person or an altruistic person. Help because they want to benefit the other person in need or assist the other person in need, regardless of whether they benefit themselves. But lo and behold, in this story, at least, according to this explanation, people were helping more because they would benefit themselves. They would get to keep their good mood. Um, it was about themselves, not someone else. So that's very interesting. I think a fascinating study and it illustrates how character is much more nuanced and complex. than we might not even realize about ourselves. I, if I was one of those shoppers, I would have had no idea that those smells were influencing whether I helped or not. I would think, you know, is that the right thing to do? Is it not the right, right thing to do? And I make my decision and I, you know, help or I don't help. I would never pay attention to the impact of the smell. and Lo and behold, it seems like it did have a big impact. But it gets tricky because
0: I'm assuming that we're treating the effect of the smell on the participants' good moral behavior as unconscious. Like these folks, you know, weren't aware that it was the smell of the cookies that was influencing them to help. So these folks probably still had the conscious experience of wanting to help. Yeah, I want to help this guy. So, if, if that wanting to help can be traced to uh, some kind of outside influence, does that then take away – do we no longer give that person credit for wanting to help?
1: Uh, that's, so this enters territory about responsibility and praise and, and blame. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so first of all, notice that there was in the control group with the the shoppers who had passed the clothing stores – they were given the same opportunity to help too. And most of them didn't. Um, So they, if they wanted to help, it wasn't very strong. Mm -hmm. Um, In this other group, they wanted to help too, but it looks like they wanted to help more. Why? Because of the mood boost they had gotten Mm -hmm. from the, uh, the, the smells. Um, Now, as far as praise and blame is concerned, I think that's, that's a complicated matter. Um, I, if it's, if their behavior was solely due to, and I'm not saying it is, but if, well, let me put it differently. The extent to which it's impacted by unconscious features for which the person didn't have any idea about in the first place, didn't have any past, um, you know, involvement in making themselves that kind of person. then that does seem to diminish responsibilities to some extent. Um, I wouldn't want to go, so far as to say, it wouldn't be praise, praiseworthy or blameworthy at all. Um, but I, it does seem to diminish responsibility to some.
0: Now, I want to make sure I highlight what to me seems like one of the important points of your book, which is not just that people are not as virtuous as they think they are and that there's a discrepancy between our, uh, our how we see our character and how our actual character is, but that we're not aware of that. Discrepancy. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. So why uh, are why are we not aware of that discrepancy? Well,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so I would say maybe just change it a little bit. Um, I think we're, we're certainly aware of it in a variety of different ways. What I wanted to highlight is some other additional senses in which we're not aware of it. Um, so, look, um, just look at history, or just look at current events. Um, these days, it's it's obvious that there is a gap between how people should be and how they actually are. Um, I mean, does it even need to be said in light of all the sexual harassment uh, stories now that um, clearly people are falling short in those instances and in myriads of other ways um, from how we're supposed to be? What I wanted to highlight um, is some interesting ways to appreciate this gap, using the benefits of psychological research. So it's one thing to you know, look at famous stories uh, throughout history. It's another, it's another thing to look at, uh, you know, who's dominating the news right now, whether it's someone at NBC or NPR or whatever. Um, but it's a, still another thing to put people in general, whether they're famous or not, important, you know, and quote, quote unquote, quote, important or not, in controlled psychological studies and see what factors influence their behavior and what don't. That, I think, is the most careful way, not the only way, but I'm saying the most careful way, to really probe people's character and see what's going on behind the scenes. Um, It's one thing to ask people, is report, self-reports, but it's another thing to really see how they actually behave in concrete situations, ideally when no one's looking. That, I think, sheds lots of light on character.
0: And are you suggesting that those studies would reveal that all of us are are more deficient in virtues than we think we are?
1: I think um, all of us is probably too strong. Um, Many of us might be surprised by areas of our lives where we thought we were doing better than we're actually not. Um, So, for example, go back to the mall again. I might have thought that I'm a pretty helpful person. Uh, That, you know, I might realize that I have some flaws elsewhere. Maybe I'm not, you know, the most um, generous or whatever, or courageous. Maybe I'm kind of cowardly in some situations. I I might have thought I was a pretty helpful person. Well, now I read this research and I think, okay, there might be some surprising elements to my character that I didn't even appreciate in the first place. And so I think... um, that's what uh, is going to be interesting to learn. Now, there's a whole flip side to this, because so far we've been emphasizing the way we fall short. But my view is actually um, we're actually in, in some situations doing better, and in some ways doing better than we might have thought too. So my view is that well, so we have mixed character. Not that we have vicious character, or that we're through and through um, cruel or cowardly or whatnot but that we have what I call mixed character traits, which have some good aspects and some morally unfortunate or disappointing aspects. And that there are situations in which people are going to behave very admirably, and that's a great thing. But side by side with those situations are other situations in which the same people might behave very disappointingly. So it's not a consistent pattern of good behavior, but it's also not a consistent pattern of bad or disappointing behavior. We see this in our, I think, hopefully in our own lives, but in, in the lives of people we know. What it is, it's a um, kind of up and down matter of uh, variation in how good or bad we tend to behave in different situations. And, and how do how do researchers understand
0: this inconsistency, which is, I, I guess you're saying we are consistently inconsistent, you know?
1: Very good. Yeah, that's right. Um uh, you could say we, are, we have a character which is um, habitually inconsistent. Um, that, but I think that that, that that can be made sense of in the following way. Um, so take the, the shopping mall again. We said um, people will reliably help if doing so will help them maintain a good mood. So that's a consistent part of their character. And I can know that, not just in chopping malls, but in other walks of life. I can, know, I can count on the fact that when people are in a good mood, they're much more likely to help. But then I can also count on other situations where I know um, people, uh, good mood is not coming into play. And perhaps fear of embarrassment instead is coming into play like when we talked about with Black Friday and and the Target store. And if I know that fear of embarrassment is really now the salient psychological factor, then I can expect people won't behave. So depending on what is the most relevant psychological factor, we can have a good idea. Helping, not helping. Honest, dishonest. Courageous, cowardly. And so we can actually, I think, still predict when people will behave more like.
0: And when they What research has to say about the way that people behave in, when the stakes are a bit higher and you bring up, for instance, what's going on now in the news uh, having to do with this this firestorm of sexual allegations against certain men, high-profile men, and, and what's being discovered about their behavior and, and the action that's being taken against them uh, for that behavior. You know, when it comes to bad acts or when it comes to maybe emergency situations, uh, situations, again, with higher stakes. How do researchers understand what makes people either do the right thing or do or not do the right thing or do the wrong thing?
1: So let me give uh, a, conc- a concrete example again because I don't like to always speak in generalities. I think it's helpful to, to have some, some situations and some studies to work with. Uh, so going all the way back to the 1960s, there are, famous studies that I'm sure your audience will be well, well-versed in having to do with group effects. So to give you a, a specific example, a participant was brought into a lab, brought in, uh, told to sit down at a table, fill out a survey, a stranger comes in, sits at the same table, fills out the same survey. The person who was in charge, who gave them the survey, leaves the room, goes into the next room. The, pe- the two people who are filling out the survey can hear very clearly that this person is now climbing up a ladder trying to get a book and then falls down. There's a big crash. And, it- and she starts screaming in pain. Ow, my leg, my leg. Help, I need help. And she's you know, kind of clearly uh, in an emergency. Well, and the, the, the rest of the story is pretty well known. If that's you taking the survey and the other person in the room with you does nothing, just continues to work, doesn't show any signs of wanting to help the alleviate uh, uh, the situation in the next room, you are much, much more likely to do nothing yourself. So this is... Uh, You know, stunning results. Seven percent of participants in that kind of situation did anything to help, even if that meant getting up out of your seat and saying, "Are you okay?" They wouldn't even do that. However, if that was you by yourself in the room filling out the survey with no one else, overwhelmingly you're likely to help. So. uh, uh, greater than 70%, I think 70% or more uh, participants in that version of the study uh, showed a willingness to help. So, this has now been replicated many times with many different variations. There's one involving someone getting electrocuted. Um, there's one involving child abuse, a very disturbing one. Um, and again, 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 the behavior or non behavior of others with us has an enormous impact upon whether we will help in emergency situations and then this gets played out in the real world too this is not just an artifact uh of the of the lab or the experiment uh, we see kind of famous stories and, and others not so famous stories of situations in which uh, for example in china at a, a four-year-old girl was hit by a car no one did anything uh she was still alive and uh after a while, yeah, she got hit by another car. No one was pulling her out of the road. And upon being hit by the second car, she died. Uh, so this is this is where character is not just a discussion we're having in in an academic book or on a podcast, but where it really makes a significant difference to whether people live or die, or whether their suffering is alleviated or not.
0: But since you bring up an example in China... It makes me think about whether the results of the studies that you're citing or whether research findings in general are cross culturally validated or applicable. Like, do we find that in different cultures there are different patterns of findings or explanations for why people display certain virtues and certain vices in certain situations?
1: The short answer is we don't know. Um, this is kind of reflective of psycholo- psychological research in general for many years it's tended to be only with Western participants. It tended to be very mm-hmm. lopsided in using undergraduate student participants. Um, this is kind of this phenomenon of weird participants. Okay, can you tell our audience what that means? Weird per- participants. That's the um, mistake of trying to draw inferences about people in general by looking at a very, very narrow set of participants, these weird participants, so Western-educated, industrial, um, I can't remember the rest of it, I'm sorry, uh, but but um, you know, tend to be students, tend to be well-off, tend to be white, um, tend to be in the West, uh, tend to be um, not representative of most people in the world. And so I think we we want to be very cautious about drawing inferences from that population, people in general. Now, um, it is true that with respect to moral behavior, there have been lots of studies, not just using student populations, but using adult populations, uh, much older populations. Nevertheless, even those have tended to be limited to Western participants, um, which is really unfortunate. And so in the book and in my, um, my academic research, I'm always trying to be careful to say, look, at most, we want to draw conclusions about Western participants, and we just cannot, at this point, go any further.
0: Right, because culture interacts with these phenomena. But if it's okay, I want to go back to what you were highlighting before about how moral behavior can be influenced by external factors, that that there's an interaction effect. Because to to return to the current moment, and what we're seeing with these uh uh allegations of sexual abuse by many men one of the things i'm wondering is about the interactive effect of power um whether you whether you know of research that shows whether power can lead individuals who might normally not do any of these bad things to do them
1: there's a very famous set of studies which i talk about at length in the book uh from the 1960s, again, the Milgram studies. So the reason this comes to mind is, I'll, I'll say in a moment, um, I'm, I'll say very little about background because I'm sure they're familiar, but the basic idea is in the 1960s, Stanley Milgram had this idea of bringing a participant into a lab and asking the participant to administer a test to someone else in another room. And for every wrong answer that person in the other room got, the participant was told to turn up a shock dial, to administer a shock, and more wrong answers, the higher the shock. The dial had to be turned up more and more, and the end of the dial was XXX, which presumably was a lethal level of shock. And as we know from that research, um, first of all, uh, it was rigged. The person in the other room was an actor, uh, giving lots of wrong answers to put the participant in a difficult situation. Secondly, there was an authority figure, and here's where the power comes in an authority figure, of, uh, a, a scientist looking uh, very authoritative with a white coat, um, standing with the participant in the room looking over his or her shoulder. And if the participant, after a while of giving more and more intense shock, started to show some hesitation or said, you know, do I really need to do this? Or can I stop now? That authority figure would say, please go on, or we need this research. There were scripted prods that that authority figure would give. And lo and behold, the very, I think, terrifying results was that 65% of participants would continue to administer the shocks Continue and continue and continue. Even once they heard screaming from the test taker. Even when the test taker started pounding on the walls and saying, please stop. Please stop. This is hurting me. Even when the test taker said, I have a heart condition. My heart, my chest is hurting. The dial would continue to go up and up and up to the XXX level, at which point there was complete silence in the other room. 65 Percent of participants went all the way to that level. And so you can see why I thought of that research because power enters into there. Um, it's not the entire story. I think about it as part of the story. Here's a scientist who's an authority figure, who's to be trusted, uh, who has the power, uh, who's organizing the experiment, and is ordering the participant to continue. And as a result, this participant, and it, that could be me. I'm not judging that participant. I'm not condemning that participant. It could, it could have been me. Um, uh, is willing to, in a sense, kill an innocent person in order to comply with the instructions.
0: I mean, I think I think studies like this really serve us a slice of humble pie because it 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 means we can't be so judgmental of people once we start to come really grasp that people's. People behave in crazy ways under certain circumstances um, for, for reasons that can be explained psychologically that it's, that if, if I understand the implications of this correctly and tell me if you think this is a fair reading, good people do bad things under certain circumstances, bad things that they would normally not see themselves as doing.
1: That's correct. I think that that's a, a I would accept that implication. Uh, now that to my mind, doesn't excuse that, um, behavior. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I want to be condemning sexual harassment. I want to be condemning, um, the behavior of the people in the Milgram experiment in the sense that, um, killing an innocent person is wrong. And I don't want to back off of that. I don't want to say it's relative to different situations or whatnot. Nevertheless, um, as you said, I can have a better understanding from the Milgram research of why those participants did what they did. And of course, that Milgram research was done not just for the sake of, you know, doing research for research's sake. It was intentionally done in order to understand historical events that were going on at the time. Events like, why were, quote-unquote, ordinary Nazi, ordinary citizens of Germany, willing to become compliant Nazis? Um, Why is it that in the military context, sometimes soldiers do horrendous things uh, at, in order to carry out instructions from their superiors. Well, uh, the Milgram study gives us some insight, um, some, some better way of understanding and explaining their behavior, uh, but not, I don't think, morally approving. You know, you've cited
0: several studies, but you conduct your own studies and have your own... Um... Enterprise devoted to this called the Character Project, right? Could you tell us
1: what it what that is? Sure. Um, now, I would want to say I do my own studies. My my psychology friends would laugh at me and say that that was <laughs> that was very far from the truth. But um, I'm I'm first and foremost a philosopher. So I you know I sit in my office and I read my books and I read what other psychologists have done and I try and draw conclusions from that and see what what this teaches us about human nature and my friends and family and people at large. But uh, as far as the character project is concerned, what we thought of doing many years ago, um, we started this project now eight years ago, was to try and overcome some disciplinary hurdles. So like in many areas of the academic world, uh, the topic of character had been kind of siloed. Philosophers were talking about it in their way. Psychologists were talking about it in their way. Theologians were talking about it in their way. And they weren't really talking to each other very much and reading each other's work and benefiting from each other's insights. So we started this this project in order to try and foster new insights and discoveries using the methodology of interdisciplinary research and learning from what's going on in these different disciplines. And so What we did to make it more concrete is we actually focused primarily not on doing work at Wake Forest University, although I'll come back to that in a minute, but on funding scholars around the world who had new and innovative projects on character. So we ended up uh, funding in the amount of $3 million, uh, 28 projects by philosophers, theologians, and psychologists. Uh, uh, um, research projects on different topics having to do with character. And most, by and large, those products were very uh, interesting and and, uh, uh, exciting, and I can tell you about a couple of them if you like. Um, But as a result, I think it just generated a whole new wave of interest in these disciplines and and findings and research and excitement and energy, which we hope will continue to uh, carry forward in the future.
0: Yeah, I would love to hear some of some of the most exciting findings or projects that you have seen come through the Character Project.
1: Sure. Um, and you can find, by the way, you can find more about this on our website, um, characterproject.com. So I'll give you just a couple examples. Um, one was a developmental study by a developmental psychologist, and she was looking at when character emerges early on in life. She was going back all the way to nine months, infants who are nine months old, and saying, are there individual differences in character at that age? And are there any ways to tell whether, pe- whether those infants are picking up on moral features of their situation? And fascinating research. And she found that the answer is yes. Um, she was studying fairness in particular. And she did very carefully designed studies where she would have an infant observe an adult behaving unfairly and then give that infant later an opportunity to play with either that adult or a different adult. And overwhelmingly, the infant chose, or in quotes, chose um, to go play with the other adults, not the unfair adults, suggesting that's they're picking up on something that they're, they're aware. And, and, you know, but certainly by, uh, 15 months and so forth, it's pretty clear that, uh, children are aware of moral norms, certain moral norms, at least maybe, maybe primitive or proto moral norms and that they matter and that they will influence their behavior. That's one example. Another example, uh, goes back to Milgram. So you, you can't do... The Milgram study anymore at least I guess ethically or um, past the IRBs today Uh, it it has all kinds of ethical uh, ethical problems with it Um, and for decades it's been
0: I just want to point out for our listeners by the way I'm sorry to interrupt but but it's such an important detail for those who are not familiar with the Milgram study you, you said that the person being shocked was an actor but I just want to make sure everyone knows an actor who was not actually being shocked ah
1: Sorry. Yes. No. That's okay. That's okay. A very, that's okay. <laughs> a very key detail. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Needless to say, that would be very unethical. Right. So, because uh, it's considered unethical today to do Milgram studies anymore, they've been done in in recent years. However, psychologists have been wondering: is there a way to maybe get at the same results using some clever techniques? And so, one of the Products we funded by some researchers at the University of Barcelona came up with a really intriguing idea. They used virtual reality simulations of the Milgram setup. What does that mean? Well, they would have a participant come in, sit at the same kind of desk with the, uh, with the shock knob and an authority figure sitting next to them. But instead of there being someone taking a test, who would get shocked, or so they thought there would be a virtual reality avatar, a simulation of a test-taker. And so when there was a wrong answer, you still turn up the dial, and this virtual reality avatar would be getting the shocks instead. Well, um, this was because there was no harm being done to a real person, or so the participant would think. This was considered to be more um, acceptable, and uh, we funded this research. Well, what happened? First of all, it seemed like participants still took this to be, even though it was in a virtual reality environment, pretty disturbing experience. Uh, Having seen this um, videos of this myself, when that virtual reality avatar um, gets the shock, quote unquote, I felt uncomfortable about it, even though I knew it wasn't a real person. But secondly, 72% of participants still went all the way to the XXX level they were able to find a similar pattern now 50 years later using this clever design. But thirdly, it wasn't just a matter of replicating Milgram for replicating Milgram's sake. That's interesting, but I would want to see more than that. What they were looking for ultimately were variables which impacted whether someone wouldn't go all the way to the XXX level, whether in some uh, cases, someone would stop well short of that. Why? Even back in the Milgram studies, not everyone would inflict a great deal of harm or shock. A few people would stop very early on. What explained that behavior? So these researchers wanted to test different hypotheses. And unfortunately, I don't think their data has been published yet, so I'm not sure, I can't report on what they found, but they were looking at things like, uh, what are their personality differences? Which might explain why A few people stop well before at the xxx level. Or are there there socioeconomic differences? Or are there even genetic differences, which might explain the difference in behavior? And then if we can figure out what those differences are, and if there's something that we can emulate or follow ourselves, that would be great to know. We want to become more like the people who exhibited moral courage, who stood up to the authority figure, who recognized More is at stake than just obeying what this scientist is telling me. This is the life of a person. And that's more important. And so by exhibiting moral courage, they stood up to the authority, to the power, like we talked about before, and said, no, I'm going to protect this innocent life. That's what ultimately I hope um, we can learn from research like this, to become more like those people.
0: And and honestly, congratulations on your success in securing funding for this kind of research is so important. You know, we're almost out of time, Christian, but before we go, could you tell our listeners what you're working on next?
1: I'd love to. So I'm really interested now in what I call neglected virtues. Not neglected by society per se, but by, by, neglected by philosophers and psychologists. They just have not been studied very much at all. The one, number one virtue on my mind right now is honesty. You would think that that's you know academics would be working on that all the time the, st- the short answer is no there has not been a single article on the virtue of honesty in philosophy in the last 50 years striking and very little research on the virtue of honesty in psychology as well so what i want to do is um both philosophical and psychological i want to from a philosophical perspective understand better what it means to be an honest person. Is that someone who, for example, always tells the truth? Or is it permissible to lie in certain situations? How do we talk about honesty with respect to cheating, lying, stealing, keeping your promises, deceiving and not deceiving people? But I also, because I think interdisciplinary research is really important, want to think about honesty from the perspective of psychology. What studies are out there, even if they're not many, which can shed light on the extent to which people are honest or not. It's that same question focused specifically on matters of lying, cheating, and stealing. Ultimately, I suspect my answer will be the same, which is that we're a mixed bag. Um, so we have some good tendencies and so not some good tendencies, but I'm open to being uh, going in a different direction and seeing where the empirical research leads me. I think this is um, not just an academic exercise either. I think it's clearly an important topic um, again, just look at the news. Cheating is rampant, um, all over the place. So I hope that it might contribute something of value to trying to um, promote honesty in society and in myself too, uh, trying to become a more, more honest person.
0: Well, that sounds like exciting work and great that you're filling that gap in in the research. I had no idea that there was such a gap. So so thank you for doing that and uh, thank you, Christian, for coming on the show and talking to us about your book. Uh, For our listeners, again, the title of the book is The Character Gap, How Good Are We? by Christian B. Miller. Christian, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, it's been a real joy.
0: Same here, take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.